0: What is population health?
1: Why do some people become sick while others don't?
2: How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities?
1: Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us.
0: Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago.
1: Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan.
2: I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis.
0: Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries.
2: All right. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals and Sick Populations. As population health researchers, we're very interested in health equity. And one of the key determinants of health, a fundamental cause, if you will, is socioeconomic status. The idea that health inequities between different racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups, particularly between blacks and whites, will be eliminated with greater levels of education, income, and stable employment, and good jobs. However, we as population health scientists note that the story is a little bit more complicated than that. So while health gaps dissipate with the consideration of socioeconomic status, they don't entirely disappear. And sometimes there are new health threats that are introduced. So today we're fortunate enough to have two leading population health scholars who've investigated the nuances in the SES health relationship. They've developed research agendas that have turned out some really interesting findings and kind of turned upside down some of our commonly held notions about socioeconomic status and health. So first we have Dr. Cynthia Cohen, who's an associate professor of sociology at Ohio State University, and is a trailblazer in population health, thinking about the linkages between racial ethnic inequalities, status attainment processes, and health outcomes. More and more looking at the patterning of morbidity and mortality across rural and urban settings, and also thinking about the role of kinship networks as sources of resiliency among marginalized populations. Next, we have Dr. Katrina Walsman, She's the Roger C. Lippitz Chair in Health Policy and Associate Professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland College Park. She's also a faculty associate with the Maryland Population Research Center and is a leading population health scholar who focuses on the US educational system and how that system shapes individuals' physical, mental, and cognitive health independent from and in relation to structural factors such as race, ethnicity, gender, and social class. So again, we're very fortunate to have some illustrious guests for our podcast today. Dr. Cohen, Dr. Walsman, welcome.
3: Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, I just wanna make one quick note. I'm actually in the School of Public Policy, not the School of Public Health. So I just wanted to clarify that.
2: Even better, so we can, we can truly embrace the interdisciplinary nature of the Interdisciplinary Association for Population and Health Sciences. So we all go way back, and it's really a treat to see you all and to follow you all's career. So um, I've probably done a really poor job of characterizing your work, especially your, your current work, even where you're situated, what your affiliation is, <laughs> clearly. So um, I was just wondering if you can start by telling us a little bit about what your current research agenda is about and how you got into this. What made you, what lit your fire to go into this area? So anyone can start with that.
0: So um, currently I have a uh, some new projects that I'm working on. Um, and of course they all, you know, they all follow from my previous research. Uh, the one I'm probably most excited about is I have some uh, a new research project looking at racial disparities in time use in the US. So uh, you know much of what we know about the time the time use literature and time use differential patterning, um, really focuses on gender. And, and of course, while gender is incredibly important, I kind of wanted to bring uh, that those ideas that we see in the time use literature and see how we can examine use it to examine racial disparities in health. Um, uh, because I think you know while things like socioeconomic status, um, and the neighborhoods in which you live and exposure to discrimination, all of those are super important in terms of producing racial disparities in health. Um, I'm increasingly interested in looking at uh, disparities and inequalities in time use. So.
3: so um... I think you did a very good job describing my work. <laughs> um, but uh, some of my new, I think my new projects are extending my prior uh, research interest in the area of um, how the education system really produces health inequalities across the life course. And so what I'm doing now um, through funding through the National um, Institute for Aging and from the Alzheimer's Association is um, looking at how early um, educational context at the state and local level is associated with um, risk for dementia later in life um, and how Mm -hmm. that might help us um, taking into account some of these differences, particularly in the US South, among those cohorts that went to school during Jim Crow. Um, can help us better understand the black white disparities in dementia that we see um, pretty consistently in the literature. And so, um, you know, extracting data from historical documents to actually have this quantitative data that we can link to the health and retirement study and do some of these um, kind of interesting, answer some of these interesting research questions moving forward.
1: Sure. And I'll add in a little note here for any of our listeners. I'm um, a, it is frustrating following behind these two often. Just in the last month, I've had conversations, one with people at Minnesota about time use and other people about cognitive uh, kind of like aging disparities, where people have pointed like, oh, I think uh, Cynthia Katrina is already kind of looking at this. And so I'm um, two like kind of real thought leaders, um, and it can be a little frustrating to follow behind them sometimes, but doing really, really exciting work. Um, So to kind of like build up on that a little bit, right? So over the course of your careers, kind of like leading all this really kind of really excellent, insightful work. You've kind of uh, produced multiple times, like I think some things that are a little bit incendiary or counterintuitive, at least like according to some kind of uh, commonly held assumptions that we have about the relationship between SES and health. Um, And so like, if you could pick a couple of these and tell us like, have these findings kind of generally surprised you? And then even more so, like, how have you kind of framed these uh, kind of findings for different audiences, kind of especially kind of for other scholars and policymakers who, you know, we have our like real kind of preconceived notions about like what some of these relationships should look like. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, um, well, uh, for me, I keep. Seeming to produce these um, surprising findings <laughs> that can really irk some people when they when they hit the press. Um, I think regarding my work on SES, race, and health, I I personally wasn't as surprised with my findings. You know, for a long time, and I know I know Katrina and and Daryl, we we've all had these conversations over the years. You know, um, I, I really you know, from early on in my career, I've been interest in, interested in how people from different races and ethnic, you know, racial and ethnic backgrounds, how they experience social mobility, right, particularly upward mobility, but also downward mobility, um, and how that impacts their health. And so for a long time, I argued that uh, the health returns to SES would not be as pronounced as um, for certain racial and ethnic groups, particularly for African Americans, you know, for a whole host of reasons. But but I tend to focus on the structural explanations. So so while I wasn't that surprised, and I think a lot of academics are aren't surprised by those findings. Certainly, um, people in the public, people in the popular press, policymakers, um, public health professionals, they are not happy with those findings. Um, I think, you know, especially in the US, where we really want to buy into this notion of meritocracy and we want to buy into this notion of, you know, if you work hard enough, you will achieve the American dream and it really is about opportunity. Um, you know, that's not that's not a uh, that's not a a message people really want to hear. So I think in terms of crafting, The message when you do data translation, it's really important for you to think about who are you talking to in this particular instance and what is their starting point, right? Because all audiences have different starting points and kind of what types of barriers or roadblocks are you likely to face and what, what are the ways you can use to break down some of those barriers so you can have um, more effective communication mm-hmm. that's sort of how i I tackle it um, now when we when it comes to breastfeeding all of that stuff um, <laughs> goes out the window <laughs> and <laughs> things get very emotional with people <laughs> when you bring up findings that um, breastfeeding might not exactly be as health protective as we once thought so sure
3: I, I love that study Cindy because uh, I was in a department at the time with a bunch of nutritionists and I had to But have you seen that paper by Cindy Colon in uh, the Social Science of Medicine? Because it suggests that maybe breastfeeding is not the be-all, end-all. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, it doesn't go over well.
3: No. I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, when did I find counterintuitive findings? But I think it's like with Cindy, it's more... um, I was expecting. I I was expecting them. I wasn't necessarily surprised by them, but I would imagine some people might be surprised. For instance, um, some of my early work when I was looking at school racial composition Mm -hmm. and mental health, and I found that among Black students, they were actually doing better when they were in terms of their mental health when they were um, attending predominantly minority schools than when they were attending predominantly white schools. And part of that was kind of working through interpersonal discrimination within the schools. And I think that based on the qualitative research that was pretty pretty expected, right? Like all of the qualitative work around um, how schools uh, reproduce race and um, racial climate and those types of things. I think that that's what I was kind of expecting. And so, but it's like Cindy said, it's important to, think about I don't want someone to walk away from that study thinking that school segregation is good. Um, That was not the takeaway point. It's more like discrimination is bad. So what can we do to um, create um, integrated spaces in which all people experience um, inclusion, inclusionary environments and and can be the best their best self basically and 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 achieve the way that they should be achieving. And so I think that that was the one that comes to my mind when I'm thinking about your question. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And I can see that you've now been in the School of Public Policy with that, that very nuanced <laughs> answer. I always struggle with these things. Like, what does this mean? So uh, hats off to you, kudos for that. Um, so I, I wanted to ask Cindy, um, about your your line of work on kinship networks. So thinking about different assets. Oftentimes people underestimate the role of social networks and social support in relation to health. So I was just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the importance of kinship and in relation to health.
0: Yeah, um, uh, again, I can kind of trace this interest of mine back to my own life and kind of my own story um coming from, uh, you know, a largely immigrant family, um, and coming from a very large extended family. Um, for us, we, we always, whether it was challenges we were tackling, or whether it was things we were, you know, accomplishing and celebrating, it happened in this very ex- you know, very large, very extended family network. Um, so I had that experience individually, and then in terms of my work, when I started uh, working on racial disparities in health, you know, for me, I, I think, and for many of us, right? We we sit in this space where we're we're, we're working, we're researching, we're thinking, we're reading, and we've, we we. Um, often focus on deficits, right? Deficits right. in marginalized communities, deficits in marginalized populations. And um, we all know that there are tons of strengths, right? And sources right. of resiliency. And in, in the extended family extended kinship networks is one of those sources um, for, for many marginalized communities. And so I think I kept coming back to it, right? Like sort of with every paper I did, I, I, I kept returning to it. Um, and in fact, the paper that I just that I just did on uh, exposure to discrimination for children and its impact on mom's health um, in JHSB, you know, I'm kind of arguing that we need, and I'm not the only one, right? I know Katrina's done this. Other people have done this too. I'm arguing, you know, we have to sort of reconceptualize exposure to discrimination um, as a family exposure, right? As a community exposure, stop, stop making it in, even, you know, when we're talking about sort of Interpersonal discrimination—it's not an individual exposure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where really my interest in in kinship networks, lie, lie, you know, lie. And then also, right, I was trained by Arlene Geronimus, and so if you if you work with with Arlene Geronimus for any period of time, like many of us on this on this call have, you know, you're going to think about about kinship networks. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, Kind of to keep building off of that, uh, Katrina, right? Uh, we already talked about this a little bit about education, um, you know, being uh, kind of imagined in the public consciousness is this, like, kind of the vehicle to kind of like upward social mobility. Um, but you have, uh, this is a joke, nobody, <laughs> this, uh, you've spent like your whole career kind of like demolishing that idea. <laughs> I think it's a really, or making that idea like a bit more complicated, right? Um, And so, you know, kind of uh, building off what we already kind of hinted at a little bit more. Can you describe some of the nuances that you found in your research, um, uh, kind of that complicate this idea about the relationship between uh, kind of education and kind of like maintenance of health in particular?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that this goes back to, you know, my own personal experience within public schools growing up um, attending a high school that was uh, very diverse. I want to say it was like 40% white and 30% 30 black and Hispanic um, equally um, along with a significant portion of uh, or proportion of Filipino students at my high school. And the the kind of rival high school in our district was all white almost. Um, And we got a lot of uh, grief, so to speak, um, being the diverse uh, uh, high school. And it just made me think when I was uh, attending there, like there were a lot of benefits that I accrued um, by attending a very integrated high school and, and that, but, but in the same vein, I also saw a lot of inequalities within the school system. So within my own very diverse integrated school, curriculum itself that's quite tracked and so a lot of the advanced classes were um, very much predominantly white. I was in many of them and so um, that it wasn't something I thought of in high school about studying long term but once I got to um, got to uh, public health and thinking about my dissertation it really I just kept coming back to these questions that I saw in the literature about education and health and I just thought Education is more than attainment. It's more than how many years of school you get. It's what happens within the walls of those schools. It's the people you go to school with. It's the kind of curriculum you get access to. It's the kind of networks that you have access to who can tell you that it's not just about, uh, like your your only options aren't just going to the, the community college across the street, but you can also apply to private elite universities as well. Those things that kind of, you know, students who go to less um, less uh, resource schools don't really get access to. And so I, I've spent, a, like you said, a lot of my career thinking about how do we measure that? How can we measure that? Particularly in population-based studies where a lot of times people just think about educational attainment and they don't think about some of these other um, aspects of education and so, um, you know, I found that these other kind of aspects, quality of education, the context, you know, the school context, um, the type of curriculum you're taking, they're all independently associated with, um, with health, um, even after you adjust for things like educational attainment and um, later income and occupational status. And so there's something about what happens within, like I said, the walls of the schools, that matter, not just for, you know, your learning process, but also in terms of your health um, down the road, so.
2: Yeah, that's really insightful, and, and thinking even beyond um, the walls of school, so it's kind of this, we're always simultaneously balancing what happens at a, at a micro level, and also a macro level, and it seems like a macro related factor that is at the core of, of all of our work on this on this podcast, but particularly to you two, is the role of racial residential segregation. And so I was wondering if both of you can talk a little bit about um, how segregation operates in your opinion, and how it affects health outcomes that you're interested in and how you've, you've accounted for the role of segregation in your work.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to pick up where Katrina, you know, left off talking about racial segregation in school context, because I think it holds for the neighborhood context as well. Um, You know, so often when, when, especially, especially in sociology, but in in all sorts of social science disciplines, um, and in public health, when we think about segregation, we think, you know, and, and particularly uh, residential segregation in African American communities, um, we think of its negative impacts, right? But, um, you know, I think we have to do a better job and and, and the more recent work uh, could, you know, Katrina's focus on, on education, but more recent work on residential segregation, I think is doing this. We have to do a better job at sort of piecing, you know, tearing apart, piecing apart, what are we talking about when we talk mm-hmm. about residential segregation, right? And, right um you know is it access to neighborhood resources right because, because that's one piece of it um is it uh, exposure to environmental hazards that's another detrimental piece of it but there are also benefits of living in in a predominantly black or a predominantly latinx neighborhood um you know you, you we talked before about those strong social networks those strong kinship networks those are much more likely to be there in more segregated neighborhoods um also uh you know, talking about reducing exposure to interpersonal discrimination, same thing. And then, um, you know, also like a lot of what I've been thinking about is, and I I think we're going to touch on this a little bit later in this podcast, but the historical context, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about neighborhoods and what residents, particularly from marginalized populations, get from living in a certain segregated neighborhood, oftentimes they can tap into this rich historic historical culture, right? Or this rich history. Um, And that can be a source of strength and resiliency and that can be health protective.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, one of the things that when I started my kind of research agenda, so to speak, as it relates to thinking more broadly about what education is and how to measure it and how to study it, there's a lot of pushback from neighborhood researchers that basically school segregation is neighborhood segregation <laughs> and so um it's i think that it's more complicated of a story mm-hmm. than that i don't think that there are one one-to-one correlation and you know i'm working with a new um with a new collaborator jennifer candepan at brown university she's she's awesome she's a sociologist in the field of education and we just received um a Spencer Foundation grant to really think about how changing neighborhoods also they correspond or they don't correspond to changing uh, school segregation and what does that mean when the schools aren't changing at the same rate or at the same way as neighborhoods and how might that be related to achievement but also to health and mental health outcomes among students and so um, I think we have to think about like Cindy said, the resources within the community, but also in terms of how some of those resources like education, like schools um, are related to changing neighborhoods, uh, just especially as we're thinking, I'm gonna use the word gentrification. And I know that that's a kind of a loaded term, but as as neighborhoods change, particularly in cities um, and what that means for the school system. And I think we really have to think about them together, not separately
1: yeah we're doing as kind of a related thing uh, a colleague and i are starting up a couple of research projects in the descriptive phase right now and we're seeing like we just wanted to ask like a simple question it's like are there different long-term or long-run health outcomes for kind of like black residents in it kind of predominantly black neighborhoods that have been stably predominantly black or ones that have like kind of recently kind of like are the result of like displacement and like even just drawing out the data, it's like massive differences, right? And so like kind of like add in this like kind of like extra level of nuance, like both of you and Daryl, you too, that all everybody on this call is doing, I think is like the exact kind of like next venue for uh, kind of this segregation in health research. Um, okay, so let's pivot a little bit away from kind of segregation and let's talk about, I'm sure that both of you have been talking to plenty of people at a national level about that, given our current kind of political context, but maybe you can share some ideas with us. Um, so um, one thing that's like, uh, you know, like a nat- part of the national conversation is about this idea of like kind of forgiving student loans, right? We know for a fact that there's kind of a lack of wealth among co- communities of color, and people among lower SES backgrounds, such like that, such that the only way that kind of like uh, kind of folks from these communities can kind of typically access some of these more expensive institutions is through and more expensive educational institutions is by like kind of like go, going through student loan programs, right? Um, but as we've again, as we've been seeing at a recent uh, through recent national conversations, kind of taking on these loans is certainly not a costless thing, and just Strictly beneficial things to do, Um, and I know that you have like kind of done a bit of work on this, but can you describe uh, to us like the effect that um, kind of student loans have on health and general well being so we can kind of fill in like why it may be very important to kind of forgive these um, things.
3: Sure. Um, I think that um, I'm glad we're talking about student loans because I really want people in Washington, D.C. to hear this. <laughs> that, 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 um, was... Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that this is definitely something that needs to have serious policy consideration. And, you know, Biden has kind of gone back and forth between, maybe I'll forgive 10,000, but not from elite colleges and things like that. And I think that really what we need to think about is, like, what was the initial reason why we even engaged in student loans? And I think Mike kind of mentioned this, was Johnson Johnson President Johnson kind of established this during his war on poverty. And this was the vehicle to help people get to college who wouldn't otherwise be able to attend college. And initially, you know, student loans, weren't, um, they, you know, they kind of, they allowed you to go to college. You didn't take out a ton of student loans to attend college because college was reasonably affordable, but college has not kept pace with, you know, any sense of inflation is like outpaced it, outstripped it. Um, and particularly public schools and um, public colleges and universities. And in part because the federal and state governments have slashed funding for higher education. So the question I always bring up when people ask me, what is, why student loans, how student loans um, related helpful? Okay, student loans having a lot of debt is associated with poor health, right? That's kind of generally what we find, worse mental health functioning, um, issues with with sleep, and even at, among parent borrowers, we're finding some of this relationship. So parents who borrow to pay for their kids' college. Um, but I think that we also have to think about okay, <laughs> like we, what do what is our goal in in the United States? Do we believe that education is supposed to be this vehicle for upward mobility? Do we agree that it is? Um, beneficial to society to have an educated populace and if we do then we need to stop thinking we need to stop thinking in terms of people taking on the onus for paying for their own higher education and thinking about it as a public good like it mm-hmm. initially was thought of and and what kind of policies can we put in place so that 20 years down, say like Biden does actually forgive student loans 20 years down the road we're not in the same place that mm-hmm. we are in today. so we have to think about things like, you know, free access to public for your education, um, and also just greater investment from the government in higher education because it matters in terms of our um, public good.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I was also thinking when you were speaking Katrina, um, is that when we think about student loan debt, right, not only does it have its implications right across a life course? But it's something that can be felt intergenerationally um, on, on, on all sorts of outcomes, health, well-being, and otherwise intergenerationally. Um, and uh, I think this is you know going to be more and more discussed because we are of the generation that started to take on a lot of student loan debt, right? And and I know for me, just taking this. From, from a research base into a little personal, I'm absolutely still paying off my student loan debt and, and I'm nowhere near done. And uh, yet okay. I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna finance my child's right. college yeah. education um, at the same time. And it's ridiculous to, to think about this. So there's this, this intergenerational aspect um, I think that we're gonna be talking more and more about, but there's also when we talk about uh, disparities in student loan debt, you know, we have to start thinking not only about individuals, but about families and mm-hmm. about networks, right? Because when you start looking across families or across networks, that's where you see these huge um, aggregation of student loan debt. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And, and um, you know, I had a couple of recent papers in the Journal of Gerontology, Social Sciences, where we were looking at parents who borrow to pay for their kids loan specifically, or um, because of what Cindy was saying, this idea that, you know, the parents are now kind of entering this midlife phase when they're supposed to be really uh, saving for their own retirement. And maybe they've just paid off their their own student loan debt, or maybe they're still paying it off, like Cindy's paying it off, um, like my spouse, my husband is still paying his off. Um, And then you turn around and you think, oh, my kid is about to go to college, and now I have to pay for them too. And so there's kind of this And then what does that mean for the child, like the young adult? My my parent has to save for retirement because there's no longer really any pensions. And so they have to pay for their own retirement. And I think that we have to think about student loans, not, I mean, it started out as a potential vehicle for upward mobility, but it may become kind of the new way in which inequality gets transmitted across generations. And I think we need to think seriously about it um, in that way. So.
1: Have, have these things been, since some of these points that you brought up, like, have you seen them or have you contributed them to kind of like a national conversation, like on student loans? Because I feel like, Katrina, like the idea that this is like investment in the public good, this is the United States, I don't think that's ever going to motivate anybody to do something that's like broadly beneficial. But I wonder if like, uh you know, if it's been framed yet, like kind of to the general public that this has like. Huge health effects, it has like huge intergenerational inequality effects. And if that would be like a better motive motivator or like kind of the effectiveness of those types of messages. I don't know if any of you have seen any of that. I mean-
3: I think that my argument is totally legit. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, no, I, I, I'm <laughs> I totally, I'm totally understand bored. why you think
3: like <laughs> it probably won't work, but it's what we used to buy into, right? Sure, the yeah. idea that there is a common, we get a common benefit. And I, I'm trying to push the narrative because especially in the time of COVID and, and um, you know, some of the groups that have inordinate amount of student debt are doctors and mm-hmm. nurses. And these folks are on the front line saving us. And we just tell them, eh, you have a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. <laughs> you make a lot of money. It's totally fine. The other thing too, that I think that we have to think about, and you guys raise the issue of racial inequality in wealth and, you know, wealth is the way that people pay for college, generally family wealth. And if you don't have family wealth and you're relying on student loans, and then you do everything you've been told to do, which is go to college, get an education, go to graduate school or, or medical school and you take out all these loans and then you have all of these loans and you cannot, you know, buy a house to generate wealth. You can't, um, you know, maybe you don't start a family right away because of, some of these concerns, or you don't get married, or you know you get stuck at a job that you hate because you have to pay the student loans. Like all of those things are interconnected and they're all related to health because they all create stress. And we all know that stress is related to poor health. So I'm not sure if that message in terms of, oh, this is bad for your health is gonna resonate with people either, but I'm gonna keep um, hammering away at, at uh, education is a common good, is a public good, and we need to support, um, people in their attempts to get higher education
2: sure yeah, let's keep on uh banging that drum beat and hopefully we'll get some policymakers on this um who are <laughs> who are interested in education as, as a public good and I think one of the things that's really a big challenge we've talked about it on this pod before is how ahistorical um, or sometimes willfully ignorant our, our general population is about a lot of these issues. And especially, like Cindy mentioned earlier, there's this strong pull to believe in the idea of meritocracy in relation to the achievement of the American dream. And so, do you think this is a critical moment, you know, in the age of COVID, racial reckoning happening? Do you think this is a critical moment to raise awareness about some of these historical unjust practices? And how do you think we should do that, especially for policymakers and as divided as we are right now? Um, any ideas about, not to put you on the spot, but um, that's where you are. You're at the, you're at the spot <laughs> on the pot. Um, any ideas about how to to do that, to raise critical awareness about some of these historical slights that fuel these contemporary um, inequities?
0: Yeah, um, I'm really glad you brought this up. Because it's something I've been thinking a lot about. You know, I feel like we're at an inflection point right now with the conversations that we're having in the United States around race and racial inequality and racial injustice. Um, and you know, we we've had other great inflection points for sure, mm-hmm. and, but I feel like at those times we kind of got stuck. We kind of got stuck uh, at the level of the interpersonal discrimination. Mm-hmm conversation if we got there at all. Um, whereas I feel like something's different and a lot more people are talking about structural racism or systemic racism um, in in all different circles. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, the door is open. We have an opportunity and we need, you know, those of us who this is what we do um, in our in our careers, right? And and we've been working on these issues for a very, very long time, you know, we have an opportunity and we need to kind of seize that opportunity. Um, uh, You know, how we do this, I think it's going to depend, again, what audience we're talking to. Um, And I don't think there's a one size fits all. uh, um, But, you know, pushing people past their comfort zone, right, making them understand how racial inequality is literally baked into our system, into our social system in the United States, um, and has been from the beginning. Um, I know for when I teach undergrads on health disparities, Richard Rothstein's book- um, mm-hmm. Color of Law. Great, yeah. yeah, the Color of Law is a great one for this. Um, I, I This is, they're mostly seniors, so they're kind of on their way out. Um, and they, they always get really upset because they're like, how come I've spent four or five years here and this is the first time I'm hearing about this? Right. Um, and and you know, I'm I'm a sociology major or I, you know, I'm I'm getting my bachelor's in science in public health. And they they don't realize to what extent it's it's literally just designed that way, right? Um and so so I think that's that's one way we can kind of seize upon those conversations about just the, the the historical nature and the systemic nature. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think that I mean my current project right now is looking backwards in time to think about the the types of schools that old current older adults went to when they were young. This is back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. There's a lot of things that changed during that time period and and our education system changed drastically during that time period. But there was also, uh, you know, baked in, like Cindy said, uh, racism. I mean, in the South, the schools were segregated by law. I mean, now granted, they were segregated probably everywhere, but because of, as Richard Rothstein points out, um, policies that created uh, residential segregation, Um, but, but I think that we forget that some of these these those folks who attend who went to these schools are still alive, <laughs> not, you know they're still here and they're still and 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 what my research is kind of showing is that these early exposures continue to resonate late in life, and so these racial disparities we're seeing among older adults do oftentimes stem from these very um, institutionalized racist policies that they experienced when they were children. And we can't just ignore it in our research and pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still exists today, but it just in different shapes and forms, right? I don't know that I have a a good message, though. (laughs) I don't know if I I could actually uh, convince anybody on the other side that it's important to think about these things.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, again, that's very compelling to I think all of us in the room right now. I guess like the kind of idea, you know, so, distant from students at this point of my career. Um, So I like, it's like remarkable. You're like, oh, you walk into the classroom and you can like actually kind of like shape their minds and like kind of like have an influence there. And that's like a really, really important part I think of like kind of developing kind of some structure to kind of like combat like, uh, or to like put into place like the things that's eventually gonna change the structure that we're in. Do you, either you kind of based on your own research or like whatever other anecdotal evidence you wanna like pull out is there kind of like specific policies that you can kind of think of that would really help like kind of, uh, um, you know, like the Biden administration or other local administrations could kind of push at this moment in time to really kind of capitalize on all this energy and be like, make any, um, any, any measurable pro- progress at combating racial inequalities at all?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we have so far to go in the United mm. States. Um, and I feel like compared to other, um, you know, countries in Western Europe and in Scandinavia, we're so far behind in terms of how we use social policy to, to kind of solve these social problems. I feel like we could do anything and it would be an improvement. Um, but, but I mean, in particular, I've been following the debates about reparations, right? That, um, that people have been having, you know, Trevon Logan and Sandy Dougherty and 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 folks like that, um, you know, I think that's uh, those are really important conversations to have uh, because, right, it's not just targeting um, socioeconomic disparities; it's really getting at the central um, importance of race, right, and, and racial inequality. Um, uh, I think, you know, beyond that, really. Uh, you know, things that come to my mind are, uh, you know, high quality, free or heavily subsidized child care, um, uh, you know, family leave policies, whether it's to deal with an aging elder or whether it's to deal with, a, a, you know, a young child or anything else you have going on. Um, uh, I, have because of conversations I've actually been having with graduate students recently I've been thinking a lot more about universal basic income, and what that can and cannot do. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, please let's just start somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Do anything, yeah, that, that's really salient.
0: I mean,
3: I what came to mind when was also what Cindy said was around the conversations around reparations, and you know, and since we brought up Rothstein's book ar- already, um, you know, some of what he talks about is, is you know, if policy created these inequalities Mm -hmm. policy can solve them right can redress them the problem is and i think this goes back to the comment around historical context and that we are a historical in the united states is that most people don't understand how neighborhoods were created in the first place they don't understand how school policy was created that and they don't understand how schools get funded, or maybe they understand a little bit. And so all of these things are kind of in this ahistorical vacuum. And but we, but again, I think that we have to think about social policies that can remedy these things. And I also just want to bring up the idea of immigration policy. I know we haven't talked about immigrants directly in this conversation. But I think that it's it's important because um, part of how some some ethnic groups are marginalized and experience um, discrimination is through immigration policy. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a way to um, address these by opening up immigration policy a little bit more, allowing, um, reducing the administrative burden in terms of coming into the country. And what qualifies you to do that, um, and supporting people who want to come here because, um, you know, our, uh, you know, the, instead of like constantly creating policy that keeps everybody out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just my, my plug there for thinking about even beyond, um, you know, some of the traditional ways we think about institutional racism as affecting African American folks in the United States, but it also affects other. Groups of of people, and we need to be mindful of that as well.
2: Yeah, well, thank you all so much for all your insights. And um, if policymakers are, are listening, just start somewhere. Um, as, as <laughs> by today, listening. Yeah. Hear, hearing from these these great experts, start start somewhere. Um, Fifty
3: thousand dollars debt forgiveness, right there. <laughs> there
2: you go. <laughs> Dr. Katrina Wasserman said it. Um, so. We really appreciate this um, opportunity to, to hear from you all and check in with you and, and your really exciting and innovative work, and this has been a really invigorating conversation. We have lots of many other questions that we could ask, but we want to respect your time and that of our listeners, and um, we know you're all are very busy, but Many, many thanks to Drs. Walsman and Colon, and um, thanks for joining us and sharing your expertise and your contributions to the field. And to our listeners, we thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations.
1: Thank you so much.
3: Thank you.